0: I'm glad Adam opened up in the Old Testament because we are going to the Old Testament as well. We are going to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So find Malachi, chapter 2, a whole Old Testament theme here today as we're outside of John for the first time in a while. Now Malachi is one of my favorite books in the entire Old Testament. Uh, mostly because of its very unique format. The setting is the mid to late 5th century B.C., about 400 years before Christ came to earth the first time, okay? And, and then right before this centuries-long period of silence that we call the intertestamental period. So it closes the canon of the Old Testament. At the time Malachi was written, misery had overtaken the lives of the Jewish people who were living in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, A hundred years earlier, they had been freed from exile in Babylon. That should have been really great news. They returned to the land with the the highest hopes you can imagine for the future of the kingdom, and even though by the time Malachi is written, they had rebuilt their temple and they had rebuilt the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem, in spite of that, they were miserable, and that whole process, every step of the way in the process of all that rebuilding had come with massive struggle filled with dissent and disruption and all kinds of armed conflict. And now, even though they had done these things and accomplished these things, they were mired in poverty. Their crops were failing. They were living under the weight of taxation from their new overlords, the Persians. But worst of all, what really made life in Judah at this time miserable was the spiritual apathy among the people and the spiritual compromise that had taken root in the land. And that's what the book of Malachi is all about Malachi is filled with a series of indictments from God indictments from on high against the people first of all charged against the corrupt priesthood who were serving in this new newly rebuilt temple but second against the spiritual failures of the people in general so if you have Malachi 2 open drop down to verse 10 we're going to look at one of these indictments in particular and, 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 and two things. First of all, see if we today are guilty in any way of falling into the same error. But second, also that this indictment might encourage us to grow in our, our resolve today to leave a godly legacy for future generations. Now, I'm going to do something very strange today. I am going to read from the ESV. <laughs> Audible gasp. Here's why. The Hebrew in this passage is very, very difficult. When you, stu- when you go to seminary and you study Hebrew, we often go to Malachi 2 because it's so technical. So there's controversy surrounding this. And the NAS, which I usually teach out, teach out of, uh, translates it in a sort of a clunky way that makes it hard to understand. So I'm going to use the more dynamic translation of the ESV for the sake of clarity so that we understand exactly what God is saying. We're going to read from verse 10 to verse 16. Listen, this is one indictment with three parts to it. We're going to look at all three of those parts. What I want you to watch for as we go through this is one particular word in the English. It's the word faithless, or in some of your translations, the phrase act treacherously. You'll find this five times in just these seven verses. So that'll tell you something about the indictment that's coming down against the people. Verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithful, faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So the prophet begins with a reference to how the people of Judah had failed to act in faithful ways towards one another. In your relationships, God says, you are acting faithlessly or treacherously towards one another. In case you're, you're wondering, well, what does the word treacherous mean in English? Let me give you a few synonyms. Deceitful, deceptive, unreliable, disloyal, and my favorite, false-hearted towards one another. So whether we're talking about the Jews under the old covenant or we're talking about Christians under the new, community life among God's people is to be marked by faithfulness towards one another, not treachery. Faithfulness, not treachery. That means living out God's commands as one people, united in purpose, united in mission. Always striving to fulfill our commitments to each other and our covenant promises to each other. And when that happens, when the members of the community are are living this way, it brings shalom to the community. It brings peace and prosperity and joy. But that was not happening in the days of Malachi. In that day, Judah was filled with men and women who were only out for themselves. Living selfishly, deceitfully, disloyally, and false-hearted towards one another. So look, the prophet asks in verse 10, don't we all have one creator? Don't we all have the same father? In other words, look, aren't we all united in this thing we call the family of God? And if we are, why is it that we're acting so treacherously against one another? And he says, by doing that, we profane the covenant of our fathers. Abraham would be ashamed of the way that we are acting in these days. So that's part 1, it's a very general thing. Let's look at part 2, look at verse 11. Verse 11, "Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god." So here the prophet moves from a general lack of faithfulness to a very specific treachery, entering into marriage with someone who does not know and does not worship the one true God. Specifically, Malachi is referring to certain men in Judah who were turning away and divorcing their Jewish wives and were then going and marrying women from foreign nations, taking wives who worshiped false gods. Nehemiah, by the way, also confirms that this was taking place at the same time. Nehemiah 13 says this, In those days, I, Nehemiah, saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab as for their children half spoke the language of Ashdod and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah so I contended with them Nehemiah Nehemiah says I made them swear by God you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves listen to this did not Solomon sin regarding these things what a challenge See, the law of Moses had been very clear that marrying pagans was strictly forbidden among his people. And the reason for that should be obvious to us. When you import idolatry into a relationship or into a family or into a nation even, you run the risk of infecting everybody with false ideas and false religion. And Satan is so clever to take those false ideas and false religion and draw people away from the truth. Now, make sure you understand this. This is not a prohibition against dating or marrying outside of your race or your nationality. This is a spiritual issue. People have gotten this wrong over the centuries. This is about worship, not about skin color, not about culture even. In fact, the Jews were permitted to marry foreigners if they were true worshipers of Yahweh. In fact, Boaz taking Ruth as his wife is a prime example of that. But in this case, in the days of Nehemiah and Malachi, the men of Judah had apparently grown infatuated with nearby women who were idolaters, and by marrying in them, they were allowing false worship, false ideas to seep into the land. And look, Malachi doesn't hold back in his condemnation of this. He says, it is detestable in God's sight. It is an abomination to him. In fact, look at verse 12, the very next verse. He says, this is how serious this is. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob Any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So a man who chooses to unite himself with a pagan idolater in marriage should be cut off from the community. His line of descendants washed away from the record books. Wow, that's pretty serious. So application for us, hear me on this. Far too often young people in the church today, during their dating years, they hear this idea, well, we shouldn't date unbelievers, and they think it's just a suggestion. It's not. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Now, I realize we're not under, not under the Mosaic law, the church is not Israel or Judah, but that principle remains just as true today as it did in the days of Malachi. In fact, so much so that Paul took the time to reiterate that principle in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That, that's pretty clear. He says, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And then picking up on the Old Testament theme, he writes, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Serious stuff. Folks, human nature hasn't changed over 2,500 years. The threat of infection from idolatry is still a threat to God's people, maybe even more so today than it was in the days of Malachi. And we're just as likely to be drawn away today from the truth and exploited by the enemy as people were back in the 5th century B.C. So pay heed to this warning. If you profess to love Jesus and to be a worshiper of the one true God, why would you choose to marry someone who doesn't share that in common with you? Why would you do that? That would be crazy. If Christ is at the center of your life, it would be so counterproductive to unite yourself to someone who has a completely contrary worldview than you do. And the only justification that I've ever heard for somebody saying, well, I'm going to do it anyway, and I've heard this many times, is, well, I just, I really love her. Or I really love him. But listen, when we claim to know God, we claim to trust in the authority of his word, but then we willfully go out and unite ourselves with an unbeliever in the most precious relationship that God made for us, acting as though our emotions and our feelings matter more than God's word, then what we do what Malachi points out here. We profane God's name. In other words, we disrespect him when we choose to do that. So part one of this indictment against Judah is a general lack of faithfulness in relationships. Part two is entering into the covenant of marriage with an unbeliever. Now let's look at part three. This is where divorce comes into play. Look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, God says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why does he not? Now, imagine the audacity here. Here we have men who are trading in their, their Jewish wives for younger models, right, for pagan women, and they think they can just casually come into the temple and drop an offering on the altar of God and he should be happy. Think of that. But now, look, their lives are falling apart. The rain isn't falling, and the crops aren't growing, and they're wrestling with poverty and hunger. So they come to the altar of God with, and I would call them crocodile tears, right? Crocodile tears, thinking that they can hide their sin from God, as if he doesn't know, that they can manipulate the God of the universe to somehow bless them in spite of their sin. And they're like, oh, I just don't understand. Why don't you receive my offerings? Well, Malachi tells us. You want to know why? Verse 14 Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been, what? Faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Listen, God is not a passive passive observer when it comes to marriage. He's not a passive observer. Whenever I officiate a wedding, I always make a point of saying that what is happening on that day is not just a party. It's not even just a legal contract. It is a sacred covenant that's being made between two worshipers and God is the ultimate witness to that covenant and he deserves to be because he's the giver of life, he's the designer of marriage and he's the very definition of love. So in effect, what God says at a wedding is this, I have seen this, I confirm it and I record it in heaven. But in the days of Malachi, the men of the community were trashing their promises that they'd made to these wives. They are trashing what God had witnessed and recorded. So of course he's not happy with their offerings. Of course. Now, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves falling into a similar trap even today. In our homes, in our marriages, we can go through periods of struggle where we are not at peace with one another, where our communication has broken down, where there's a lack of confession of sin, where there's a a lack of forgiveness between spouses where the husband's not leading well and the wife's not yielding well either. And what happens when, that, when those things are going on in the home is all of life becomes a big stressful mess. When that relationship is not right, everything becomes harder because we're not living up to the covenant promises that we made. But oftentimes in our minds, we don't even make that connection. Why I'm not living faithfully over here and my life is going terrible, but I'm not making that connection for some reason. We just keep coming back to church thinking we can leave an offering on the altar and God is somehow going to be pleased with us. The truth is when we do that, our hearts are not in it. Our hearts are not for him in worship. We're going through the motions. Our singing and our prayers are hindered by whatever we're holding on to, pride, unforgiveness, anger, whatever it is, and because we're acting faithlessly toward the spouse of our covenant. So Jesus teaches, before you bring an offering to the altar, do what? First go and be reconciled, whether that's to your brother, to your sister, or to your spouse. If you want the offering to be received by the Lord. Make sense? Now drop down to verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, that is a strange-sounding statement. When a man divorces his wife, he covers his garment with violence. By the way, other translations say he covers his garment with injustice or with wrong. Well, this is a cultural reference, again, that goes back to the time of, of Judah. And actually, you see it played out in the book of Ruth. Remember how Ruth goes to Boaz and Boaz says, well, who are you? And Ruth says what? I am Ruth. Spread your cloak over me, for you are a kinsman redeemer spread your garment over me. So the Hebrew custom was for a man, when he wanted to show his intentions to marry a woman, he would drape his outer garments over her shoulders and it pictured his protective care over her, his protection and provision for that woman. So we come back to Malachi now. What God means here is that when a man becomes faithless towards the wife of the covenant and, and, and faithlessly divorces her, he in effect yanks that garment from her back. He takes that garment that was once there, he yanks it off of her, and he exposes his wife, makes her vulnerable to injustice and maybe even physical violence. It's a very graphic picture that we should take seriously. Now, it's not my intention today to go into the details of divorce. That is a whole sermon series in and of itself, and I know that there are many here that have been damaged by divorce. It's a very touchy subject. Not plenty to go there today. If if you ever wanted to talk about that, Please reach out to an elder. What I really want to get at is the principle that I skipped over here in verse 15. Look there. Verse 15. It says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Now, this is likely a reference to the original marriage in the garden between Adam and Eve. Did God not make Adam and Eve one? Well, of course he did. And the idea here is that the spirit's power, get this now, was sufficient to grant any number of wives to Adam. Right, God could have have done that if he wanted to. But his plan was very clear. One man and one woman in a one flesh relationship. So divorce is contrary to God's original plan because it violates that oneness. He's making the connection there. And then he goes on, and what was the one God seeking? Why all of this oneness? Note this now. One God, one man, one woman in a one flesh relationship Equally yoked in one faith. Why all of this oneness? Answer's right there. Godly offspring. Godly offspring, says the Lord. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless, there's that word again, to the wife of your youth. So here's the big idea that I want to end with today. Godly offspring. Let me say this to the many young couples here at Oak Hill or the youngish couples here at Oak Hill. Youngish, Grant. The Lord desires to produce godly offspring through your one flesh marriage. That's the desire of the Lord. To produce godly offspring through your precious covenant one flesh relationship. Let me say to uh, my fellow older folks in my age range, who currently or may in the future have grandkids, The Lord desires to produce godly offspring through the marriages of your adult children. And you have a role to play in that. So as grandparents, we cannot check out because we have a role to play. God wants to do something through the marriages of your adult children. And let me say to the singles here at Oak Hill, singles, (laughs) whoo. People are like, (laughs) if the Lord wills it, and someday you find a spouse and you enter into that same sacred covenant of marriage, you need to know this principle going into it. The Lord will desire to produce godly offspring through your line with whoever your spouse is. And that is a big and glorious responsibility. Embrace it. It's embrace it. It's something that God calls you to. But now in this crucial time of life, while you are dating, be wise and be careful about how you date and about who you date, keeping this principle in mind for the future. Amen? Now, am I saying that procreation is the only reason to get married? I am not. There are many wonderful reasons to get married and many wonderful blessings that come with it. But we cannot ignore the fact that among those reasons, God says that he desires that the men and women who he himself draws into his family and brings us together in this sacred one flesh relationship that he desires to produce godly offspring through us for his glory and for his kingdom. That's a part of our calling as believers. In fact, I think it's safe to say that it's God's ordinary way of working to produce faithful believers through generational lines. Through generational lines. In other words, faithful believer meets faithful believer and they have faithful kids. That's how God operates. Now, does it always work out that way? No, it does not. And we all know that's true. Why? Because all the little critters we have are sinners. And eventually they develop their own will, their own opinions right? And their own wants. So it doesn't always work that way. But as I said, that is God's ordinary way that he works in our world. Listen, this much we know for sure. God has ordained the family as the first and most fundamental of all human institutions. It's right there in Genesis. And it's the family that God uses to transmit knowledge of himself from one generation to the next. And for that reason, the concept of of the biblical family structure is always going to be under attack from the secular world. It is under attack today more than any other time that I remember in my lifetime. It is being attacked. If you destroy the concept of family, you can bring down a society, even a nation. And we're seeing it happen all around us today. Redefining language in terms, denying basic biology about sex and gender, cheapening fidelity in marriage, making roles interchangeable, teaching all forms of anti-God philosophies in our schools and slowly exchanging the foundation of our culture, which was biblical ethics, to moral relativism. Folks, that is a recipe for the destruction of a people and it's happening in America today. So our mandate, our mandate as believers, as we sit here together, right, and the world is out there screaming about all kinds of things, our mandate as we gather as a family is to reject the world's view of these things to reject it to resist those worldly trends by going out and doing the opposite doing what God calls us to listen to this we get to be countercultural today in my day we used to say we get to be punk rock right we're actually the we're not the norm anymore we get to be countercultural catch this by getting married to a fellow believer and raising a traditional family in the lord and that may sound silly how is that countercultural listen That is a radical way of living today. But that is our mandate. We get to do it. And listen, it is also a strategic and eternally vital task that we have before us. One which God can use to work through and ensure that the gospel is preserved in our generation and that truth passed down to the next. We're all a part of that. We're all a part of it. So what kind of legacy, what kind of legacy will you leave behind when you're gone? I know a lot of you guys are like, I'm in my 20s, Jeff. What are, you, what are you talking about? It's never too late to think about this. What kind of legacy will you leave behind? When your children speak of you someday, what will they say? I know it's hard to think in those terms when you're young, but time will fly by faster than you think and it's always profitable to look down the road and to consider the long game. Yes, to think about your future children, even to think about your future grandchildren. And know that within the boundaries of God's sovereignty, much of what they will think about God will depend on you as parents and as grandparents. What and how you teach them, how you treat your spouse, whether or not you love other people, the priorities you set, the consistency of your life, how you study God's word, how you function within the church. There is a lot to it and there is a lot on the line. Also know this, the consequences of leaving behind an ungodly legacy are vast and far-reaching as well. I know this personally. I have seen families very close to me fall into spiritual apathy and moral compromise. And those things, with families who I thought were on track, those things led to apostasy and adultery and divorce. I've seen it with my eyes. I've felt it in my bones with people I considered friends. And those things have devastating effects on their kids and will have a devastating effect on the next generation as well, even into eternity. So there's a lot at stake. There's a lot on the line. So here's the thing. The Lord desires godly offspring, but godly offspring don't happen by accident. Let me say it again. Godly offspring don't happen by accident. If you want to leave a legacy that matters... Let me just give a few brief exhortations and then I'll wrap up. Husbands and fathers, it starts with you. You're not called to become the head of your home. By virtue of God's ordering of the family, you are the head of your home. Whether you like it or not, that's who you are. So step up to the plate, men. Grab hold of the mantle ordained for you. Work hard to become equipped for the task at hand. And know that you're not alone in this. Not only has God given you his spirit, to help but he's given you brothers in this church local church who will come alongside you and help you to become that man but that's your calling listen strong husbands and strong fathers in the home are absolutely necessary to produce godly offspring I'm gonna say it again strong husbands and fathers in the home are absolutely necessary to produce godly offspring so resist the idols that are gonna to try to draw you away from your family Maintain a faithful posture towards what Malachi calls your companion and your wife by covenant. Keep cultivating your love for her and lead her with a sacrificial heart. Amen? Wives and mothers, likewise, keep your marriage the priority over and above your children. The marriage is where it starts. Encourage and honor the leadership of your husband. Don't hinder him or try to take over his role, but yield to him as worship unto the Lord. It is key to establish biblical patterns in the way your family functions. So strive, ladies, to make your home a respite from the world, a place of shalom, of peace and joy. In most cases, women, ladies, you will spend more time with your kids than your husband will. You'll just get more hours, and that means you have a huge responsibility, right? For better or for worse, our children will learn from the way we speak, learn from the way we react to things, learn from what we prioritize, So always keep in mind that what your kid needs most is not to be the center of the biblical family, but to be a part of the biblical family. Not at the center, but a part. In a family where love is cultivated and where roles are properly lived out to God's glory. To both moms and dads, take seriously the command from Proverbs 22 to train up your children in the way that they should go. Listen, do not outsource the training of your kids to anyone, not to your Christian school. And as much as we love Meredith and the Acorn Ministry and her team, we don't outsource the training of our kids to them either. The the school curriculum, the Sunday school curriculum are to be supplements to your training in the home. Be aware also that the world is trying to train your children, right? The world is trying to disciple your kids each and every day. Social media and the internet have changed everything. They will fight against you every single day for more influence over your kids than you have. So your job is actually 10 times harder than what Tanny and I had when we were raising kids. You're going to have to be diligent and awake. You're going to have to work hard to show your kids what a biblical worldview actually looks like. That means you don't shy away from the tough issues of the day. That means that you talk through things that your kids are going to face, whether it's sexuality, gender, abortion, social media, the list is endless. We cannot shy away from those things. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Study, learn, grow, and be ready to equip your, your kids as you train them in these difficult things. Friends, always remember that in the home, consistency brings life, but hypocrisy kills. Consistency especially in your faith, brings life. Hypocrisy kills. Make sure that what you're teaching with your lips matches how you're living. Otherwise, you create confusion with your children and you, you run the risk of actually driving them away from the gospel. And let me just say this as I wrap up. Parenting is the hardest thing in the world. Can I get an amen? I, there's nothing in my life that's been harder than parenting. I still haven't figured it out. And my kids aren't perfect. but what a blessing to be called dad and now to be called Papa and what a worthy task that God has given us to raise up and train generations future generations of faithful worshipers what does God want from our one flesh covenant marriages godly offspring godly offspring so whatever stage you're at in life it is never too early or too late to commit to these principles and to start leaving a legacy that in the end is truly gonna matter. Amen? Let's bow our heads. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you even for the, the voices and the cries and the, just the sound of the kids in the back, Lord. What that tells us is that you are doing a work here at Oak Hill. You are giving us this incredible blessing to train the next generation. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for a time in your word and to see the warnings that you gave to your people in Judah so long ago, but how it applies to us today in the way that we view things like marriage and parenting. Lord, I know that there will be many more opportunities we'll have here at Oak Hill to flesh these things out, but for for today, Lord, I pray that you will give us a grand vision for this calling in our lives and that you will continue to strengthen us as a people as we seek to be faithful to raise up that generation. Lord, thank you for this morning. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.